Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Well, Happy New Year, and first of all to everyone, as this is my first recording of the new year and new decade, and I am so proud to say our 50th episode of Financially Speaking. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners, subscribers, and anyone new listening right now. I pledge to you this show will continue to bring you content that matters and guests that are truly changing the world and making a difference. Today, I am so excited to be sitting down with the only other boss I truly listen to, besides Bruce Springsteen, of course, (laughs) Tom Narodle. Tom, for those of you that may not be familiar with him, is the co-president of Global Wealth Management and President America of UBS and a member of the Group Executive Board. Tom has spent his entire 36-year career at UBS, starting as a corporate intern when they were Payne Weber, before rising through the ranks to lead the 20,000 employees across the United States. Tom is also on a number of boards, including the American Swiss Foundation and the College of Nursing at Villanova University. A very busy guy. Joining me on this podcast today will be my wonderful partner in our financial advisory practice of the Slater Trainer Group at UBS, Ann Trainer. So let's get to it. So a recent guest, Flip Flippins, yes, that is his name, best-selling author, serial entrepreneur, talks about everyone having a first story, one we don't write but was actually written for us when we entered this world. Or to put it even simpler, as Julie Andrews sang in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. So how did things start out for you? Let's take it from the early childhood days and go from there. All right. Well, it's great to be here, Mitch. Thanks, Tom. So I grew up in Newburgh, New York with uh, my parents and my two brothers. I was the oldest of the three of us. Both my parents were teachers in high school. We had a great family growing up, very competitive from a sports standpoint in terms of how all of us grew up and played sports against each other and competed. I uh, attended Yale University from 1979 to 1983. And during that time period, I was I had to I had to work during the summers and had one of those interesting choices between my Sophomore year, my junior, year, I was working as working at a at a moving van company, and I had received with my student loan application a note from the U.S. Army that said, "If you join the Army Reserve, we can pay back some of your student loans." And so, I was frightened to death in an economy that had a ten percent unemployment rate, with being yep. ten thousand dollars in debt when I got out of school. Mm-hmm. And so that experience was a great one, you know, certainly having the privilege to be able to serve in the Army Reserve. It's also one of the things that uh, helped me to get my my interview at Payne Weber, because the guy who interviewed me said he wanted to meet one of the few people who was attending Yale who had actually been in the Army. And so that was that was one of the things that helped open the door to me at Payne Weber. Oh, and I've heard that. I've actually heard that story many, many times from people in, in not just our industry, but in many industries. So, you know, it's it's kind of rare in today's world to work for the same firm your entire career. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, that's that's quite a feat. Yeah, I never thought that would happen when I started, and I don't I don't really think that that was uh, an objective. But it was one of those things where you know, first, I think what keeps you at a firm is is the people. And I always felt like I, I was either working for some tremendous people, working with tremendous people. And and I also had a lot of people who I think were very good mentors to me throughout my career who challenged me to, 
to try different things. And so, you know, you might say, well, 36 years, it seems like the same thing. It was definitely not the same thing during that, that time period. I had multiple experiences. And certainly when UBS bought Payne-Weber in 2000, you know, that sort of changed a number of the opportunities and, and sort of took us from a firm that was primarily domestic to one that was more global. And, and that was really, really a neat opportunity. And you had the opportunity to live in Switzerland for a number of years, right? Yeah. So my family never moved to Switzerland. So I was sort of doing the commute back and forth. I had my apartment right. in Switzerland for the five-year period where I was group CFO and group COO. Yeah. I was talking to Philip Costanza on an earlier show about about those years and, and the challenges and, you know, going back and forth because she did a little bit of that as well, I think. Yeah, you know, as you start to feel like you get on the, you get on the plane, you know, Sunday night, and as you start getting into that routine, you see some of the same people flying back and forth. And usually if you fly out of Newark into Switzerland, it's, you know, either people in banking, insurance, or a pharmaceutical industry. And then you start to think it's normal because you see the same, you know, the same <laughs> you know, like group on of the people bus. on the plane. <laughs> but you can get you can get used to anything. And and also my my wife was extremely supportive during that process. And, oh, and she so critical. She did a lot of a lot of work, you know, carrying the burden of of raising our five kids. So she helped me realize my career dreams while she was while she was doing that. Well, that's so interesting. Thank you for that. We wanted to move a little bit into sort of the here and now since mm-hmm. we, you know, handled the past there. But right now we find ourselves in the first month of a new year, a new decade, in fact. And I had seen recently that last month with our group CEO, Sergio Armati, he had asked each member of the group executive board, which you're a part of, for one word to describe this upcoming year. And I believe your word was promising. So we wanted to ask you about that and why you chose that word. Yeah, so I'm optimistic about this year for, for a number of different reasons, I think. You know, first, I think in our in our business, we've built a really good foundation. We've got good momentum as we come out of 2019. Certainly, the the market tone in the economy, you know, going into this year is a lot better than it than yes. it felt last year. <laughs> That's for sure. And you know, in our business, I mean, we were the world's largest wealth manager, the most globally diversified, the highest percentage of high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, and I feel like we're we're just perfectly positioned to be able to really, really be able to extend our lead, you know, in our business to be able to do things that are more relevant for our clients. Certainly 2020, there's a lot going on. And if you look at clients globally, the number one issue they're concerned about is the 2020 election in the United States. Yeah. So, you know, we've got great insights. We've got a great team with our Office of Public Policy in DC, Mike Ryan and Salida Marcelli and the CIO team. Jeb Henserling now is one of our vice chairmen. We're going to have our election watch series, you know, out for our clients and for our advisors. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot of relevance in terms of the intellectual capital that we can bring to our clients. This is a world and a market and a business where advice has a premium. The need for advice is growing, not shrinking. So, so I feel like we've got the the right business mix to continue to help us to be increasingly relevant for our clients. You mentioned our intellectual capital and, and one piece that seems to be gaining a lot of traction that a lot of our clients have found very interesting as well is recent house view that has um, the decade of transformation piece in it. And, and in that, it talks about certain trends, you know, that we feel are going to make this a transformational time. I don't know if, if you've had a chance to see that, or if you have any comment on any of those trends. Well, so actually, actually there, are, there are a few things in that report. So I think it was great that the CIO team took 
the opportunity with the year ahead report to also look yeah. to also look at the decade. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you know, one of the one of the most important things to think about from an investing standpoint is, you know, how did demographics and thematics impact what we see going on in the markets? And so that's clearly a centerpiece of of the work of the work that they've been doing. Whether it's technological innovation, whether it's going to be an increasing focus on sustainability, whether it's going to be the implications of increasingly concentrated wealth and the generational transfer of wealth that occurs, all those themes have both investment implications as well as societal implications. And so it's it's really critical for us to understand those things, talk to our clients about, about those items. And importantly, to help our clients position themselves, you know, for those changes in in their portfolios. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think everybody's waiting for the age of the Jetsons. I mean, they've been waiting decade and decade. So maybe maybe this is going to be the decade we'll, <laughs> well get there. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's really, it's really interesting that you bring up the Jetsons because space and the commercialization of space is going to be one of those, one of those really interesting themes. And it's something that I, you know, I, as a kid who grew up in the, in the sixties and, you know, stayed up late at night with my grandmother to watch, you know, man walk on the moon for the Mm -hmm. first time. Right. You now see an energy around space that you probably haven't seen for 50 years. It's very true. Because it's, it's this combination of commercialization, the competitive spirit, companies competing against each other. Right. It really is an exciting time. Yeah, no, you and you have so many visionaries like Branson and, and Musk that are, that are out there. And uh, it's interesting because when one of our recent podcasts, I had the honor of interviewing Joel Peterson, who's chairman of JetBlue and, and author of The Ten Laws of Trust. And we talked about a number of things, but we actually asked him about if JetBlue is uh, going to go in the space direction. And, and I think he was more focused a little bit in, in actually sustainability and talking about the planes being, you know, more you know, carbon neutral and electric and everything like that. One of the other things that we talked with him about was the importance of culture in organizations. And this, I think, is just a great, great example. So about six months ago, you moved your office to a very central location here in our UBS headquarters, an area better known as the Hawk's Nest, which is really the hub of this building. And I feel that really speaks to the culture that you're facilitating here at UBS. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on the culture, what your vision is for, for the firm, and, and, and what made you make this move. Yeah, so, so first, maybe I talk a little bit about the, the redesign we did of the space first. Mm-hmm. I hadn't decided that I was moving at all until I took my first tour of the space when we still had studs you know, up and we hadn't you know, sheetrocked everything yet. But what we were trying to achieve was modernizing our, our space here in our, in our headquarters. We wanted to create, and a lot of this is the generational shift, what our employees are asking us for. They want more community space. They want more flexible space. They want the ability to be able to work where they want, to decide to have team meetings in a, in a more comfortable and social space. And so we ask, we work to do the design mm-hmm. work for us on this facility. And what we've got, as you, as you look at on the floor, we've got a cooking school over in the corner and we've got a music room and we're p- putting in a library and a prayer room. But this has become, in the design, the only way you can come into UBS's facility now is through 
this main entry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully you're taking that staircase up, the walk up the staircase over to the coffee bar. And we try to get our employees to mingle a bit more with each other, you know, as they start the day. So when I took the tour and was walking around with the uh, engineering and architecture team, I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to be here because my old office was in a space that was far more traditional. And I really... We didn't bump into people as, as much as I'd like to. So it was when we first moved down here, literally the first day I was here, I bumped into someone that I started working with, you know, over 35 years ago hmm. that I wouldn't have bumped into otherwise. Right. And so I think it's great for our people. They're very excited about it. Every evening during the week, there's somebody holding a social event, you know, at five o'clock. And I just think it's making me more energized and it feels like more of a community. It really does. And the collaboration is incredible. And, and Ann and I have actually seen that. We work with a number of incredibly strong millennial run companies that are either in the marketing and social media space or, or different things like that. And, and they've created this kind of atmosphere from kind of from day one. Maybe the Google example, I guess, is, is one thing. And it, it, it does make a difference. Was there Were there any other organizations in mind that you feel specifically optimized that excellence and collaboration that you, you know, noticed? look, I, I think that there are a number of design firms, you know, that are smaller that have utilized space like this. I, I think it's more the, I know one consulting firm uh, that we work with occasionally, BCG, mm -hmm. had actually done their space over by Hudson Yards right. and, you know, created the same, the same type of layout. They actually went so far as to put sensors on all of their employee IDs so they can measure how much time people were spending in conversation with each other. Hmm. And they said that they were able to show that just by creating this open space, that the number of interactions had you know, increased geometrically wherever they came up with. I can see and feel it as I you know bump into people, as I see people, as people tell me what they like about the space. We've also done this on our technology floor. We're also doing it on, on another one of our floors. So I definitely think it's the layout for the future. You know, people spend a ton of time in their work environment and they want to feel like it's more than a job. And I think that architecture and layout and all those things matter. The other thing that's really great, and you'll, you can really see it up on our technology floor is we've moved, you know, in the past, you'd have all the you know, senior people would sit in offices around a building and essentially they would capture all the sunlight. <laughs> and there would be no sunlight that would ever come into the center of the building. And with open plan, there are no offices as you go around the outside of the building. That sunlight, and, and we've got a great view here of Manhattan across the river. Sure. All those things are then for your, your entire team to enjoy rather than just your senior people and you throw your offices into the core of the building. No, it, makes a, it makes a huge difference. And as yeah. someone that both of us have been coming here to this building for you know over a decade now, and what a it's tremendous beautiful. change. It's absolutely beautiful. I think it too, again, during the last podcast with Joel Peterson, we talked about technology and its effect on, on culture. And that was one of the things that was mentioned is sometimes it creates less interaction. So having these types of spaces, I think, you know, well, is great. You can also look now that the, the Technological change that's occurred, though, has has also allowed us to carry around, a, just like you have, mm -hmm. carry around an iPad, a, a tablet, carry around a small device like a mobile phone, and do your work. So right. the, the flexibility to be able to sit down at the coffee bar, hop into one of our booths, mm -hmm. you can access all the technology that you need right in your hand. Mm -hmm. Tremendous. That's perfect. So... 
Let's shift now. There was a subject we, we also wanted to ask you about, something that we know is critical to our firm, UBS's mission, sustainability. And we'd love to hear your thoughts, not just on sustainable investing and its importance to our clients, but also as a tool for recruitment and retention, since clearly, as I think you already mentioned once before, millennials, Gen Z, this is something that matters to them as consumers, but also as employees. And so just love to hear your, your thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, so it's a really important theme. And I, and I also think it's important to for us to make sure there's a lot of buzz around sustainability. Mm-hmm. And we're going into the World Economic Forum next week. And I'm sure we'll, there'll be a whole lot going on around this topic there. I think we're probably on the verge of maybe too much buzz and not enough substance, mm-hmm. potentially being an outcome of that. And it's critical that the pursuit of this really is for the objectives around sustainability. So let's, let's talk about like, why is this important? Our research team and CIO in particular, Paul Donovan, has done a number of pieces looking at research pieces focusing in on whether it's economies of countries that are more focused on sustainability, companies and their performance relative to their peer set, and the performance of the stocks of companies that are focused on sustainability. And the the research they've done shows economic growth is better when you focus on sustainability, companies perform better when you focus on sustainability, and financial investments that are based on companies that are focused on that perform better than those than those who do not. So one, it's good business, it's good economics, and it's a good approach. So that's very important. Second, there's been a lot of work done, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. When you go through them and really think about what is the work that's been done on defining some of the problems that could prevent sustainability, taking a look at some of the actions that need to be taken and what we need to do in order to focus going forward is, is really pretty critical. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why UBS got engaged with Bottle Top mm-hmm. on the Together Band initiative. Right. Right. It was a way to promote, you know, first, awareness of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Second, hopefully to get more people engaged on the on the topics of some of the you know, sustainable Give a quick goals. explanation of what the Together Bands are. We will link to this on the podcast, folks, and tell you how you can help, and actually you can get some of these Together Bands. Actually, we are wearing three different ones today. I'm wearing the green climate change one, and I think you have the... Red. The red, and, what, and that is for... Gender, gender, gender equality. equality, right? And yeah. you're wearing blue. Mine is mine is SDG 16, which is peace, justice, and strong institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one, I really am excited about the fact that a lot of our employees are really as engaged as as you two are in terms of, you know, wearing the together bands, talking to people about them. It's a great conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Terrific for uh, for sure. And and I find what's most interesting is to find out why people choose. The specific right, band right, that they right. that they focused on, and you know, in my case, I had read through all of the SDGs, and the SDG sixteen, peace, justice, mm-hmm. and strong institutions. One of the things that when you re- go to the UN site and you look at the stats, one of the stats around that goal has to do with the number of unrecorded births around the world, mm-hmm. and so if you're talking about it's hundreds of millions, and so if you're thinking about you know, the value that's placed on human life, if you don't record someone, it's almost as if they don't exist. And so when you think about things like hmm. 
human trafficking. Right. And you think about things about violence against people. Clearly, just even having initiatives to making sure that everyone who's born is Has counted, an identity. Mm-hmm. is counted, mm-hmm. is a critical part to just setting the mindset properly. The, the second aspect that I liked about uh, this goal, it's very important to our industry, to the finance industry. Because in the strong institutions piece, there's a part about, well, how do you stop things like drug trafficking, humans trafficking, and arms trafficking? And it's, well, you stop the money flows. Mm-hmm. And the role of you know, global, large global financial institutions is to do our part to make sure that we're preventing money laundering and the things that can actually support a lot of uh, a lot of really bad people. And so I thought it, it grabbed me in terms of, wow, this is a really big issue, but it also grabbed me in terms of, and there's something that we, we as a company can do about it. And I keep learning more and more about each issue. For example, I interviewed recently one of our UBS global visionaries who started this company, Peak Vision, Andrew Bestaris, who was probably one of the coolest guys I've ever met in my life. And, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to that show, he basically is helping half the world see. I mean, there's just no other way. He doesn't think it's going to happen in his lifetime, but he's an ophthalmologist and an eye surgeon who he and his wife moved from the UK to Kenya and and realized what a problem there was and literally through technology developed a way to just get everybody in these little villages seeing again, just getting them glasses, just something so simple in working with, with companies like UBS. And, and he was supported by the Queen's Jubilee Trust, for example. So I keep looking through the 17 and, and, and learning learning more and more about the importance of each one and, and how we've nailed this so so much. And, and yes, I'm going to say I'm a little biased, but I am proud to work at a place that takes this so seriously. We've been the leader in this area. We've been the first in this area. And that's given us an advantage and, and, and our clients an advantage in being so dedicated to it. So it's really, really critical. Yes. And the other thing about sustainability, I think you really grabbed on to something extremely important, which is personalization around sustainability is is really important. And, you know, I think that there's some concerns when people talk about ESG investing is that it can sound sometimes to clients like we're trying to transmit our social views onto them. Mm-hmm. And what our CIO team has been really focused on, in particular Mark Heffley personally on this, has been how do we ensure that we're creating a personalized process? for our clients to be able to think about, well, what matters to you, right? Our job is to, to help to show them, you know, what's out there, what will have an emotional connection for them, what will have meaning, you know, to them, to help them to find that. And then for us to, if, they, if that's what they'd like to do, to invest in line with their personalized choice around sustainable investing. And I think that that's, that's something that you can't do as a hobby, that's something that you have to do when you're really committed to it. And, and, and like you, Mitch, I'm, I'm extremely proud of, of the work that UBS has done on this. Absolutely. Recently, I reread one of my favorite books in the last few years, Tim Ferriss's book, Tribe of Mentors, where he gets this short life advice from some of the brightest and best leaders in the world of business, entertainment, and sports. And one particular question I would love to ask of you, I just think this is a great question. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? And I'll even give you an example. Mark Benioff, for example, said adopt a K-12 school because that's something that you know he's very, very involved in. I would say hug a nurse. And, you know, look, I think if you, if you think about healthcare, you know, there's one thing about, about nurses. We all see them on the way into life. 
And we're probably, if we're lucky, going to see them on the way out of life. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of serving on Villanova's College of Nursing sure. Board, as you, as you noted. That was an outgrowth of the career that my daughter chose as a nurse. She's a neonatal intensive care nurse in, in New York. And I've learned so much. When I was asked to join the board, the guy that was on the governance and nominating committee had called me. He was in our industry and was talking to me. And I, I asked him why he had joined. And he said, look, my daughter is, is a student at the College of Nursing. It's a career that she chose. And I don't know a whole lot about it. And I figured this is the best way for me to learn. And I said, that's the best reason I've ever heard to join a board. And since my daughter was also a student there at the time, that was what convinced me to go on the board. And I've learned a ton. But one of the things I really like about it, it is clearly a board that's majority female, which is usually not what you see. So that's mm -hmm. been a really good learning experience for me as well. And it's continued to increase my admiration for what nurses do. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I've, I've you know obviously dealt with it with kids. And actually, my mom recently was in the hospital and, and the nursing care was beyond what the doctor care was. We'll just put it that way. I mean, just just incredible and just just so impressive. Well, here's another question that's in, in, along a similar line. I've heard that you're an avid reader and I've heard that specifically you really enjoy spy novels. So what books are on your nightstand right now? What can you tell us about you or that you've recently read? So I just I just got back. I flew back from Switzerland last night. I was there in the earlier part of the week. I just finished John Le Carre's latest novel, uh, Agent Running in the Field. Great read, All typical Le Carre. Are, yeah. <laughs> I started up Brad Taylor's Hunter Killer, which I think will be a fun read. In the more serious reading, I'm going to put a plug in for a friend of mine just wrote a book, Dave Sutherland, who's a retired colonel from the U.S. Army, great leader, really good friend, authored a book, Bedouin Boy, Poet King. It's one of those, probably you know, one of the lessons there, a number of lessons that come out. There actually is a focus on culture and organizations, as you brought up earlier, but it's the concept of, do we want to be defined by what we do? Or would we like to be defined by what we aspire to be? It's a fun read and a real thought-provoking one. I've got a few that are on the you know books to read section right. of my iPad. <laughs> I think we all have those. Uh, <laughs> I've got uh, I've knocked off one of Nathaniel Philbrick's revolutionary trilogy novels. I've got two more to go, so that's on the future read. And there's one that I'd really like to – Lee Child, who writes the Reacher series, Jack Reacher mm -hmm. series right, books, yeah. has written a nonfiction book called The Hero about sort of like the history of the hero myth, but then also what is it about heroes in, in society, which that, I'm really, yeah, which I'm really looking forward too. to. That would be – that's a great, great book to look at. Are there any books that you consistently give as a gift – that you just like, this book just says, and that, that might be maybe more in the business yeah, vein or well, something that you just think you know, that, I, that you'd want all, all say, five I'd of your kids two, to read or something. Uh, Atlas Shrugged <laughs> is the one that I you know either gift or recommend the most. I would say another one, again, a gift from, from Dave Sutherland to me was Message to Garcia, which I gave actually to all of our managers probably about four years ago. And one thing I mentioned in Dave again, but one of the things I like when Dave gifts a book, he always handwrites a note on the inside of, of the book to you. And, and that was something that I always like to copy a good idea. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I found that was a good idea. <laughs> and so uh, when I gift a book, I do take Dave's idea of writing in a note about why. It, it makes a big difference in always in personalizing. And I absolutely agree. 
So as we wrap up for 2020, I'm trying something new, a little rapid fire lightning round of, of three questions, which, you know, you kind of can answer with your first thought. So here we go. So what purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months or recent memory? Oh, wow. $100 worth of gift cards from Apple. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. It provides a lot. There's a lot of knowledge you can get from that. So what is your favorite diehard sports team and why? Uh, the New York Rangers, diehard hockey fan, and, and I have uh, grew that. up loving the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it might be one of those seasons again. Well, but, I think you know. I think we're an exciting team this season. <laughs> that, that is true. I watched, remember watching a game New Year's Eve, and that was exciting. <laughs> what piece of advice would you give to millennials or Gen Zers about to launch their career? And also, what advice should they ignore? Yeah, I spent I spent a lot of time with our younger people, in particular our GTP classes. You know, as they as they come through, and I always try to get them to take the time to really explore what they can in the crowd. What I always say to them is the job you have and the next job you have aren't quite as important as you think to your career. Give yourself the chance to experiment a little bit. It's not, it's not about succeeding at everything and trying something and learning that it's not for you is almost as important as finding out what you really want to do. I think the bit of advice that they should ignore, I think a lot of younger people today feel the pressure, and maybe it's from social media, that I need to have the next new thing that I can tell people about. And sometimes they feel that next new thing has to be a different company. <laughs> uh, and the next new experience could just be about being brave and trying a new role within your existing company. It doesn't have to be a change of a, a company to do that. So... You know, I think there's a lot out there in terms of opportunity. I think that some of the things about the the stereotypes about our different business industries is, is certainly changing. I was just checking. Uh, I'd been talking to a reporter and was just having something fact-checked. And I realized that of the 4,300 people we have in this building, 45% of them actually are technologists. Um, so when people say like, like, what is it that we do? That tells you a lot. You know, yeah. 45% of our headquarters staff here are, are involved in technology. And I bet you that's around the globe in many, many companies. I mean, clearly you... Yeah, you hear, you hear a lot of people talking about how, yeah. you know, they're a technology company regardless of the industry right. that they're right. in. And, and I, I really do think that that's, uh, that's the case. If you think about that, the power of the technology we carry around with us. I think there's something amazing like like an you know an iPhone has as much power as, you know, the the computer that was in the lunar module that, yeah. that actually man on the moon. I, I think it's actually more. I mean I, I remember seeing that in the Apollo eleven documentary recently and it's like something like eight times the amount oh, wow. of the power of, of of what was in that lunar module, that little tin can that took us to the moon wow. 50 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so well done, Tom. You're ready to compete with Ken Jennings on the next Jeopardy championship now. <laughs> Seriously, though, thank you so much for your generosity today and sharing your background, your vision for the future, and most of all, your strong leadership here at UBS. This, is, this has really been fun, and Ann and I, and I know our listeners, truly appreciate you spending some time with us today. All of the reports that we've talked about in the show, like the year ahead, the decade ahead, 
more information on sustainable investing, the Together Band. I'm going to link all of that up in our show notes for you. I want to thank everyone who helped make this show happen. Marsha Askins, Joni O'Neill, Nikki Hess, and Hugh Williams in Corporate Communication. And as always, I want to thank my brilliant business partner. She went to Cornell, so I always refer to her as my brilliant <laughs> Ivy League business partner. I'm just a GW guy. And all the folks that resonate recording for all their post-production work. And as we say every week, remember, when saving for your future to always pay yourself first. Have a great week. 